Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a four-week Advent teaching series leading up to Christmas called God With Us. Thanks for joining us. Well, I have a confession to make to you this morning. It's a pretty big one. Um, You're either going to raise your opinion of me or lower your opinion of me based on this. I'm a fan of the Muppets. That's right. Always have been, always will be. Even in college, a group of us would get together every week to watch the latest episode of The Muppets. Now, a few years ago, The Muppets teamed up with CeeLo Green, and they co-performed a Christmas song called All I Need Is Love. And in true Muppets form, it's full of humor, it's full of action. All the favorites show up from Kermit to Fozzie to Miss Piggy to Pepe to Gonzo and his chickens. And my personal favorites, those two old guys, Statler and Waldorf, who always make those comments off to the side. And in the song, CeeLo and the crew sing about all the Christmas presents that they could get. Fancy toys, all the latest technology, some of the bling that they want to get. But perhaps ironically, at its core, the song captures the true message of Christmas. The Muppets and CeeLo don't want all that stuff. All they really want or need for Christmas is love. All of them except, of course, Miss Piggy, who has always been a bit of a material pig. I'm quite sure the Muppets never set out to make any grand theological statements with their Christmas song. But the truth of the matter is that song taps into the idea that all we really do need is love. And today as we celebrate the second Sunday in Advent in our journey through God with us, if you're following on your notes, we're celebrating that God with us means love. When Jesus came into the world as a baby, he was the human embodiment of God's love. When he came as Emmanuel, God with us, he came as love incarnate. Now, if you weren't able to tune in last week in our first week of Advent, and if, or if Advent's just unfamiliar to you, let me just briefly explain what Advent is as we journey towards Christmas. The word Advent simply means coming or arrival, and it's a season marked by expectation, by longing, by waiting, by anticipation. Uh, I really think of it this way. It's both an opportunity for us to Remember the longing that the people of Israel had for their Messiah to come, and he did come. He was God with us, but it's also a reminder to us today to stay alert because God will come again. And during this Advent season, we're focusing on one of the promises God makes with the coming of his Messiah. We're focusing on things like hope or love or joy or peace. And this week, we're going to talk together about this idea of love. And to do that, I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn it to 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Before we look at that passage, though, would you mind praying with me? Gracious Father, this word love has come to mean so many things today in our world. But help us to get a clear picture of what it means that you have come in love, that you are coming again in love. Let us eagerly anticipate your return together as your church. So as we look at this today... Help us to understand this word more deeply so that we can live it out in reality in this world today, a world that is so desperate for your love. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, our passage starts this way in verse seven. John writes, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. I hope you don't miss that at the end of verse 8 there. John makes one of the most amazing claims in the entire Bible. He says, God is love. 
Everything else we're going to talk about today goes back to this one supreme reality. God is love. Did you know there's only four things in the Bible we're told God is? We're told that God is light. We're told that God is spirit. We're told that God is a consuming fire. And we're told that God is love. And it's important to understand that in that statement, John isn't simply describing a quality or a character trait that God has. It's more than that. John is making a statement about the very essence of God's being. If you're following on your notes, it's not simply that God loves, but that he is love. Now, one of the errors we tend to make today when we hear a description of God's love is we impose a human idea or a human view on God of love. For example, God loves us when we reciprocate our love for him because that's how human love really works, right? If you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. If we show God love and affection, God will in turn show us love and affection. But the kind of love that John is talking about here in reference to God transcends any sort of human limitations that we have tended to put on love. God loves simply because that is who he is. Let me just use a, a real basic uh, illustration here. I am human. That is who I am. And in the very same way, God is love. So that means in famous passages like 1 Corinthians 13, known as the love chapter, where it says love is patient and love is kind, you simply could in, input God's name there. God is patient. God is kind. Why? Because God is love. It's who he is at his core. And so what that means is that this love was at the beginning of all time. It was at the beginning when God decided to create the world and then create us into his image. Love was there when Adam and Eve fell and humanity was thrown into a broken world. Love was there at the beginning, deciding on a plan to help restore humanity back to God's love. Once everything was lost, love was still there. Love was there when God made a covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Love was there when he led the Israelites through relocation and resettlement, through triumph, but also through imprisonment and exile. As we trace all throughout the Old Testament, love was there because God was there. And love was there when Jesus, Emmanuel, was born. But really, what is love? I don't know what you think of when you hear the word love. I hate to admit this to you, but whenever I hear the word love, I think of a princess bride when the priest is marrying that couple and he stands before them and says, love, true love. I think that's kind of how we think about it, right? Uh, let me talk a little bit about what love is not before we dig into what love is. First, if you're on your notes, we're not talking about sentimentalism. Love is not just sort of a warm, generic feeling, a wishful thinking that we might have for somebody. It's not the kind of love we see on the Hallmark Channel, which I'm being forced to watch right now. Second, love is not shallow, where we just love someone up to a point, and usually that point is where it doesn't have to cost us anything. You don't really love someone until you go through a valley with them and you come out on the other side with them. True love is tested and proven and goes beyond the surface. Third, love is not niceness. Now, don't get me wrong. Niceness isn't bad, but 98% of the world can be nice when they want to be nice. I can be nice to people I don't even like. And don't look at me like that. I know you can do the same thing. Sometimes I think that this is the goal for a lot of churches, though. If we just nice people to death, then they'll want to come to church. 
But niceness isn't even close to the kind of love being described here. Again, I got nothing against niceness, but it's not a power that will change the world like love can. And then most importantly, love is not selective. Where we say things like, I love you, Uh, you're okay, you've always gotten on my nerves, I've never liked you to begin with, I like you sometimes. No, listen, James chapter 2 tells us we're to love one another without partiality because that is how God loves. That means we love regardless of race or background or education, regardless of the way a person looks, whether they agree with you politically or theologically or not. Friends, selective love, partiality, has no place in the church when it comes to how we love. But unfortunately, I think what has happened in our day is that we have reduced the word love down to those things. And you know what they all have in common? They're all about feelings. We've reduced the word love, this majestic word, down to a feeling. If we have the feeling of love towards someone, then we will respond to them. If we don't have that feeling, we won't respond. The first year I was here at Cherry Hills, I had lunch with one of my really good friends, and he said to me that he was thinking of divorcing his wife. And the reason he said this, a reason I've heard dozens of times since, is I just don't feel any love for her anymore. And I got to tell you, in my most sympathetic way, I looked across the table at him and I said, I don't care what you feel. When you took that oath to love your wife, it doesn't say you love her whether you feel like it or not. It is a choice that you make daily. You see, the kind of love that John is talking about here, it doesn't mean emotion. It doesn't mean feeling. Listen, sometimes those things come with it, and when it does, that's great. But sometimes those emotions and feelings don't come with love. The word that John uses here for love is agape. We've talked about this, right? Agape. It's that unconditional type of love. Agape love is the kind of love that says, I am choosing, I am deciding to love you. Or even if I don't feel like loving you. Or if you're following on your notes here, listen, love is an act of the will that leads to action. It's an act of the will that leads to action. It doesn't always have feelings behind it. This is, in fact, how John goes on to define God's love. Let's read verses 9 and 10 out loud on our notes together there. It says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. How did God show us his love? Through action. If you're following on your notes, God didn't love in abstract terms. He demonstrated it. God took on humanity in his flesh and he said, I will show you that I am love. How will I do it? I will send Jesus. When I was growing up in our house, we had this one cabinet that was kind of set aside in our uh, dining room. And in it had all of this expensive china and sterling silver tea sets and all these things. And it was one of those things we never used it. It was there to look at, but never to touch. All those things simply stayed on the shelf. And sadly, I think this is how many people think of God. He's up there, sitting on his throne in heaven, not involved. Look, but don't touch. But the reality of Christmas is that God came off the shelf. In love, God came off of the shelf. Notice something very important in these verses, though. 
The initiative to love lies with God. We didn't trigger a response from God for, so that God would say to himself, hey, that was really nice of you. I think I'll love you now. No, it was the total reverse, John says. God loves us first. His love is free, uncaused, spontaneous. God's love is like no other love known in humanity. God looked down in heaven at your life, and he just loved you. That's it. That's a mind bender for those of us who can only understand love in reciprocal terms, but God is love. He's just love. And because God is love, God took the initiative. He doesn't love you because you do your best to go to Sunday school. He doesn't love you because you're doing your best to keep the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't love you because you paid your taxes on April 15th and you were honest about it. The New Testament says that all of our righteousness is like a bunch of filthy rags to God. Listen, it's not that they're unimportant. It's simply that that is not the reason God loves you, loves me. God loves us simply because he chooses to, because he is love. Of course, Jesus is the ultimate demonstration of God's love, and in the Gospels, we see the kind of love Jesus loves with. And I just want to mention five of the ways Jesus demonstrates his love to us, and as I'm doing that, I want you to pay attention for the application, because this is the way we are to love others as well. So first, Jesus loves us selflessly. I mentioned this story a few weeks ago, but I think it's worth going back to again. In John 13, Chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, we read this. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Here's Jesus, the sovereign king of the universe, taking the place of a slave, of a servant, picking up the towel and selflessly serving his disciples. And just in case they missed what this was all about, he tells them why he does this in verses 12 through 17. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. You know, one thing I thought about this week that I tend to forget about this story. Jesus washed Judas' feet too. He didn't first decide whether or not Judas deserved it. I'm certainly he didn't feel love towards Judas in the way we talk about it sometimes, and yet he washed his feet anyway. Why? Because God is love. This kind of love is not easy for us, is it? It's hard for me. I know even in my relationship with Peggy, there are always these moments of self in my heart. I play games like if I do this for her, then she in turn should do that for me. Or I think I'm going to make the bed this morning. If she doesn't notice that I made the bed, I feel really bummed out the rest of the day. And I know I'm not the only one who does this. All of us at some point, maybe even unconsciously think, what is this kind of selfless love going to do for me? But Jesus never thought like that. His one desire was to give himself and all he had for those he loved. 
Second, connected to that first one, is that Jesus loves us sacrificially. He loves us sacrificially. Well, how do we know that? Look back at 1 John in verse 10 there, where it says the ultimate expression of God's love is that the one who walked the shores of Galilee, God in flesh, was nailed to a cross. And he bore the judgment of God. For remember, God is a consuming fire. He is a God of justice. He bore that for you and me. That is what an atoning sacrifice is. Someone willing to die in our place, bearing the price of our sin, taking the judgment of God upon himself so that we may never have to experience that through faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, if you ever just need to think about God's sacrificial love, just look to the cross. The cross is the culmination of love. Sometimes today in our lives, we think uh, that love is meant to just give us happiness. And hopefully it does bring us happiness. Sometimes it does do that, but love will also bring pain and sacrifice. It may even demand a cross from us. I read a story this week about a man with cerebral palsy who was a part of a church, and this church was going on a retreat to a, to a campsite for the weekend. And he really wanted to come, and so somebody volunteered. This man's name was Greg. He volunteered uh, to watch over John. And the whole week, Greg had to be 24-7 with John. He would take him swimming. He would take him to meals. He would bathe him. He would do everything with him. And at the end of this week, this church gathered together, and they shared all their favorite moments from the week. And all the kids, of course, were like, my favorite moment was swimming. Uh, My favorite moment was swimming. My favorite moment was the rope swings. My favorite moment was swimming. And they finally came to Greg, the man with cerebral palsy, and they asked him, what is your favorite thing from this week? And he looked at John, and he said, you. No, what was the favorite thing that you did this week? You. John was willing to sacrifice his entire week for the sake of another. That is love. Love is dying to self by putting others first. Third, Jesus loves us forgivingly. Now, I don't even know if that's an actual word, but you know I had to keep my L-Y going. But this is the very reason for the cross, right? Because God is love, Jesus took our judgment upon himself so that we could be forgiven that we could be restored to how we were originally created to be. I mean, think about this. Jesus knew Peter was going to deny him. He knew his closest friends were all about to forsake him in his hour in need. They were often blind and insensitive, slow to learn, lacking in understanding. Sounds a lot like me. And in the end, they were all miserable cowards. But Jesus held nothing against them. There was no failure which he could and would not forgive. He even forgave the people who crucified him. That's love. And what that means for us, let me make this real clear. What that means for us is that when you and I make a mistake where we have failed to love our Christian brother or sister, we go to them seeking for forgiveness, saying those really hard words, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I didn't love you correctly. It may sound simple, but it's sure not easy if you've ever tried to practice it. How many times in my life have I had to swallow my pride and do this? But I also want to say on the flip of that, as hard as it is to say I'm sorry and seek somebody's forgiveness, sometimes it's even harder to forgive. But that's love. Forgiveness is so important. Our forgiveness of others is so important. Remember what Jesus says when he teaches his disciples how to pray in the Lord's Prayer? In Matthew 6, 12, he says, And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. 
Two verses later, he goes on to describe what that means. Look at the rest. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Wow. I don't know about you, but that's a little sobering to me. Our relationship with the Lord is directly related to how we relate to one another and our willingness to forgive those who have sinned against us. If you've wondered lately why you're not experiencing any fellowship with God or any joy in your life, it's quite possible because of your lack of forgiveness to others. Now, this is a big topic, and I just want to remind you again, forgiveness does not mean excusing somebody's sin, nor does it not mean setting up boundaries in that relationship. What it is, it's a gift God gives us in order for us to be able to release our anger and our bitterness. And the reason we offer it is because God has offered that very thing us. Fourthly, Jesus loves us truthfully. Sadly, in our day and age, I think over the last 30 years or so, we've kind of separated these two ideas, truth and love. There's no love and truth. Love is just basically saying, well, I won't say anything about that. That's how I love them. But Jesus' love never held back the truth. In fact, in Luke 13, 3, he states the truth about life and death pretty plainly. It says, but unless you repent you too will all perish. Now let me ask you a serious question. Do you believe Jesus is saying that out of a pure heart of love? If your child was running out on the street about to be hit by a car, would you tell them the truth? Of course you would. You'd yell, get out of the street. And in the same way, Jesus often in his love speaks some hard truth to us. Sometimes loving somebody really means getting to the truth. It means calling sin, sin. It means challenging them to be better, but always being willing to do that with a heart of love in the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus was always full of grace and truth. And then finally, Jesus loves us practically. Remember, Our definition of love, love is an action. How did Jesus show his love to us? He gave us a concrete example. God looked down on humanity and said in the essence of his love, I am going to show you that I am love. How will I do it? I will send my boy so that the world may be able to see him and touch him and learn from him and follow him and might in observing him know that I, God, am love. I will go so far, in fact, that I will offer him for the sake of those very people I have come to be with. This is how Jesus loves us. This is why God with us means love. But our passage is not done yet. Look at verses 11 and 12 as we wrap this up. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Wow. It sounds actually pretty similar to the words of Jesus in John 13, 34, which I have printed on your notes there. Let's read that out loud together. It says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Notice, this is a command, not a suggestion from Jesus. And what it means is that in this Advent season, if you're following, we have the opportunity to love others like Jesus loved us. And how did Jesus love us? Selflessly, sacrificially, forgivingly, truthfully, 
and practically. Now, why is it so important that we get this right as Jesus' followers today? Well, read the very next words that Jesus says in verse 35 on your notes. By this, by what? By love, loving one another, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By this, by the way you love one another, all people will know my love. I have a hard time wrapping my mind around this truth. Basically, Jesus is saying, if you learn to love one another selflessly, sacrificially, forgivingly, truthfully, and practically, the watching world will look at us and decide that's different. That's a different kind of love than the love I see in this world. If you're following on your notes again, as we love one another, people will know we belong to Jesus. Francis Schaeffer, a wonderful author and writer and theologian, calls this truth right here our final apologetic as Christians. By that, he means we can't expect to the, the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, that Christianity is true, unless we're demonstrating that to the world through love. In other words, think of yourself like this. Your life, your daily life, you are like an audio-visual demonstration to the world today. And the way that we treat others is the picture we are giving the world of Jesus and his love for them. Literally, if you go through church history, this is what brought people to the church. In the second century, the historian Tertullian reported in the, that the comments of the pagans in his day were this, quote, Behold how these Christians love each other. How ready they are to die for one another. Friends, the Christians cared for the people nobody else cared for, and it brought attention to the pagans living in that world. We've talked about this before, but along with sexual purity, the way they loved one another was a magnet that drew many people to know Christ. And I've got to believe it still has the potential to do that today. I find this so interesting. It's not about how good Chuck is at leading worship. It's not how good the preaching is. It's not about how organized we are. It's not about how nice our building is. It's not even about the ministries that we offer. Here's what people in the world really want to know. Do they actually love one another? Because you know this. People aren't finding a lot of love in a lot of places today. People are wondering, is there any place on the face of earth where people really love one another selflessly, sacrificially, forgivingly, truthfully, and practically? Because if there is, I want to know more about that. And so let me ask you as we're heading towards Christian, Christmas. There are a lot of needy, lonely, depressed, sick people around us. There is a lot of anger and bitterness and even hate in our world today. The question I want to challenge you with today, if you are a disciple of Jesus, will you choose to love even in that situation? Will you choose to love someone selflessly, sacrificially, forgivingly, truthfully, and practically? Or if you're following on your notes, here's what I want us to consider. Will I extend the same love to others that Jesus did to me? Let's pray. Father, we can't get over your love for us. It's hard to believe that that is who you are. It's not just something you do when we're good, when we please you, when we love you. You are always loving us. And you have demonstrated that in the most amazing way possible. You have become God with us, love with us. 
Love so far that you willingly gave your life for us, Jesus. How can we not do the same for the world around us? Forgive us. Forgive the church with a capital C for not living this way. For not carrying the mantle of love. For all the anger and the division. We repent of that. We ask that here at Cherry Hills, we will follow your command to love others the way that you have loved us because we know there is a world watching. There is a city watching. We cannot do that on our own. We need your Holy Spirit, so fill us now as we do that together. We pray this with eagerness and anticipation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.